The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 146. With 809 cars for every 1,000 people, the U.S. has the fourth highest vehicle ownership per capita in the world, trailing only San Marino, Monaco, and Liechtenstein. And those countries have like five people each. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and today is part two of my interview with Alan Carl, author, public speaker, and a man who took an absolutely incredible three-year journey around the world on a motorcycle. In part one, Alan talks all about the first part of his epic trip, including stories about getting picked up by bandits in the middle of the jungle, breaking his leg in the middle of nowhere, riding over the bridge of death, and tens of other mishaps and escapades. So if you missed part one, you'll want to go back and listen to that first. You can find that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods, or of course on iTunes, Stitcher, or however you're listening to this podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by our good friends at Tortuga Backpacks. And whether you're going on a crazy adventure like Alan, going on a quote-unquote regular old backpacking trip through Europe like the founders of Tortuga, Fred and Jeremy, or even just going away for a weekend somewhere, Tortuga has a bag for you. I've taken my Tortuga all over the world. Now I'm rocking my Tortuga Air as well. I absolutely love them. And so do many of you out there based on the incredible responses I've gotten over the last few months. So if you're looking for a backpack, check out Tortuga at tortugabackpacks.com. Don't forget to use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capital letters. You'll get 10% off your entire order. Now let's get on to part two of my interview with Alan, starting with how and why he knew it was time to finally end his trip. So after all these crazy experiences that you've gone through, some amazing, some hard, some you know exceedingly difficult, how was it when you actually came back? Like, How did you decide to end the adventure? Like, make the decision, okay, this is over. And how then did you feel after coming home three years? You're on this adventure, and, and sure, you were home because of the broken leg for a little while. But really, this was three years of your life where you were completely removed from what your old life had been like. And so you come home, and how do you, how does that resonate with you? How does that resonate with your friends and family and, and people who obviously support you, but don't really understand how you changed and what you went through? As, as much as I've, I've spent the last, you know, 10 minutes telling you about these challenges and these obstacles and the, and the problems that I had, in all of that, you know, there are so many more experiences that I share in the book about when you are 
in a situation and people come out of nowhere, people that have nothing are willing to give you everything. And those connections with these people really, that, that, that's why the, the, the book is called Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine and Connection. Along this journey, three years, I'm meeting so many people. The hardest part was saying goodbye often of people that may invite me into their home, cook me a dinner, share a birthday party for their young children. Those experiences that are not like going and looking at the museums or trying to navigate hard, difficult roads, those experiences were, were, were the most rich. So as I traveled through Sudan into Syria, I had, you know, uh, Egypt, amazing experiences with people. You know, the, 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 the journey for me was less about that adventure on the motorcycle, but that was my means, than it was about connecting with those cultures. So one of my goals was to get to Iran, because Iran is one of the most uh, misunderstood, misrepresented countries for Americans, I, I think, out of all the crazy places in the world. And I really wanted to go through Iran for two reasons, to see for myself these people that I know were very friendly and eager to meet Americans, and also to share that through my blog that I'd been keeping all during this time. I had been trying since Egypt, and then in Ethiopia, and then in Turkey, at the Iranian embassies or consulates to see if I could get a visa, a permission to enter their country. When I got to Turkey, I'd been on the road more than three years at this point, and the Iranian embassy, it's typical, they'll say, oh, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow. I mean, it's not just the Iranians. It's always that way when you're trying to get a visa. I kept coming back tomorrow, and I realized there's no way I'm not getting this visa. And it's at that point, the economy is starting to struggle over here in the United States. And I realized that uh, a trip that I thought uh, at one point was going to take two years, I'd already been three years, and there's still a lot I needed to do. But I thought that's the time I need to get home. That, that, that is a failure for me because I, even with all my levity and my communication skills that I thought were so good, I mean, I got into Sudan, very difficult for an American. Syria, crossing a land border, very difficult for an American. I convinced these guys and I thought that's, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to get into Iran. But you know what? I'm not that good. I started to arrange to figure a way to get my bike back and, um, finished my journey in the United States. And when I did get back, you know, the hardest thing for me was the people are so open and friendly in most of the world. Come back to the United States, people here are filled with fear. They lock their door, you know, they, they lock their doors with three hatches. They got security things that, you know, fences, cars. I mean, it's like, God, what? People thought when I was going on a journey that you're going, that's dangerous, Alan. But yet, you, you know, here in the States, Often, I think people just live in fear, like something's going to happen. And bad things happen everywhere. I mean, you got to be prudent, no question. But that was tough. Going into a supermarket probably was the most tough thing for me because the mass of consumerism is so blatant in your face. You walk into a store, a market in Zambia, for example. I went into a little store, a grocery kind of store, and they had long aisles with shelving. Not very fancy, no pricing, no little markets like on sale today. But yet these shelves were long, maybe 30 feet down an aisle, 40 feet. They might have five products on them, five different products, one of each. 
you walk down an aisle here at the Safeway and you want some toothpaste, we've got probably about 30 different brands of different kind. You know, do you want one to whiten your teeth? Do you want something for fresh breath? Uh, you want tartar control? You want uh, this? How many different kinds of laundry detergent do we have? We've got, you know, amazing produce stacked to the ceiling, shining, glistening as if it was on a set for a movie. And you go into other places in the world and these people don't have the choices. I remember staying with a family in Malawi. It's in Africa. It's uh, kind of north of Botswana, south of Tanzania, in sub-Saharan Eastern Africa. And the lady who told me we went to the market, she was trying to get some butter. And they said, you know, and this was Tuesday. They said, well, we're going to have butter on Friday. Come back on Friday. Now, what if you walked into your Safeway and the guy, the manager said, come back Friday for your butter? Yeah, it's crazy because whenever I come home from a trip, and, and this is even trips to other developed countries at times, sometimes undeveloped, sometimes developed. And, and no matter where I am, there just isn't the choices that we have in America. And, and you know, the choices are great. And there, there's some times that I'm very thankful for the fact that there are so many choices. But most of the times, right when I come back from a trip, I really feel paralyzed when I go into a supermarket or a Walmart or a Target or whatever. I walk in and I just, I don't know, I, I feel like I have to get out of there. You know, like, <laughs> what did I even come in here for? Like, if I have a list, I can go in, grab these things and run out. And if I don't, and it happened to me the other day, I was, I was there and I just thought, this is overwhelming. Like, yeah, I'm not going to freak out and go crazy, but inside I'm just feeling this is overwhelming to me. And and I think that especially when you're on a long-term travel trip like you did, it's such a stark contrast between what we have and what other countries have. And again, sometimes that's really good, but sometimes it can just be very eye-opening when you come back to think, oh my gosh, we really do have these supermarkets that you can buy anything you could ever want in them. I, I'm always hit by the supermarkets as well. Whenever I go in, I just it it gets me every time. Yeah, I mean, making a decision, we are forced, and and that's why the marketing and the messages and all the stuff that we're constantly getting, people want you to choose me, choose me, choose me, choose me, and being in um, any country where that that has maybe two types of toothpaste or something like that, I, I have to say, you know, it, it's pretty easy to get out of that market. But like you said, it's like overwhelming unless you've got a specific list. So the consumerism and the products was, yeah, re real, real tough. And then I didn't want to get into a car. In fact, I didn't even really want to ride the motorcycle. I felt that I just needed to gather my thoughts. I thought I got to work on what is the best way for me, now I'm back in the States, is to truly share this experience with you know, my family, my friends, with the community, with the world, because my experiences, despite the challenges which I overcame, were very all positive. And we, as a society, as people, need to be more open to those new experiences, being open to new culture, and being open to diversity. And I realize that's when the idea originally I was just going to write a story a travel story a travelogue a memoir you know a la Bill Bryson or even uh, uh, Paul Theroux you know great some of the greatest travel writers but I thought you know what this is less about me and my journey than it is about the people I met the cultures I integrated with 
and certainly the food. And that's kind of where the whole idea of forks bubbled from is from what we're talking about. It's like, wow, you know, if you can't travel the world as I did or as long as I did, how can I give you a chance to experience the world in the way I did it? You know, at least slightly through my eyes, sure, but also through seeing the faces, the places, and the food of all these fantastic places. And the making of the book, that could be a whole podcast in itself, because you've got a a cool story with that. I want you to touch on it a little bit from, you know, and and you kind of started it. You got home and you thought it was going to be a travelogue, like a, a typical, here's me, here's what I did, here's the funny stories, crazy stories. And, and you shifted gears and made it much more than just that. I want to talk about like putting the book together. How long did it take you to do? What were the struggles with that? And of course, you did something really unique to actually fund the book that I think is a lot of people are going to find pretty fascinating. Yeah, no, great. That's, that, that, that is it. It could be a whole story. So as I said, you know, I, I was originally going to write a book, a travelogue memoir, and I had submitted proposals to publishers and agents and they liked the idea. Wow. This is this guy quits his job, you know, successful marketing uh, executive hops on a bike, travels around the world, you know, comes back and has these great experiences, connection with people. Bam, let's do it. And then I, I had dinner one night with some friends and I cooked a dish that I actually had a recipe that I had secured because I loved it when I was in Brazil called a uh, moqueca. It's like a fish stew. We were open to bottles of wine, and then my friends say, I'm talking about the book. And they say, oh, why don't you put recipes in your book? This is just great. And I just thought the light went off, Travis, and I said, my goodness, perfect. And they said, God, you know, your photography, Alan, is so good. How can you not include photography in your book? And I thought, yeah, you've had those books where in the middle they have six pages. And I always hate that. I hate when it's in the middle because I skip ahead to it and then I know half the story already. Like, put these throughout the book. Why are we putting it in the middle? That's so antiquated. Exactly. So I wrote back to my publisher, uh, agent contacts who are, you know, eager to see my book, publish my book. And I said, here's what we're going to do now. I'm going to include these photographs. We're going to make it a coffee table book. I'm going to put recipes, the real food that these people eat, and the faces of these people. I've got so many pictures of people smiling, you know, where you've, where I've gained their trust, connected with them to really capture them in a, in a different way. These are not, you know, the photos I snuck through, you know, trying to get pictures of these, you know, these people that look different than me and et cetera, et cetera. They said, Alan, that's a great idea, but let me tell you, you are not a chef. You don't have a food platform. That's the industry term for, you know, what gives you, you know, why are you going to put food in here? It's like, well, I don't own a restaurant. I'm not a chef and I'm not doing any top chefing kind of things on TV. So they said, forget it. You know, it's not going to work. And they said, photography, we love your photos too. Uh, put them up on your website. You know, people can look at it from the book there, but they're too expensive. We can't print this book, you know, profitably. So I thought long and hard about this. The publishers wanted the story about me. I wanted to share the story about the world and the people I met. So I decided to publish it myself. And I went down that road. And it took me three years because I self-financed the production of the book, meaning, you know, laying it out, designing it, putting it together. But when it came to print it, because it's a big coffee table book and it's got about, oh, 
300 pages almost in it, and it's got hardcover. It's expensive. And I thought, well, I'm going to need some help, somebody to lend me some money. And, and it's at that point I thought about crowdfunding and Kickstarter. This is in October of 2013. So I decided that I'm going to plea and share my story. I have great photos. I got great video. And I sat down in front of the camera and I said, here I am. Here's my story. Here's what happened with the publishers. Look at this book. If you agree with me, help me. Help me print this. And I had set a goal for what I thought could print a minimum quantity. And I doubled that goal, Travis, because people who saw the video, read that story, said, you know what? He's right. The heck with the publishing industry. This book needs to be published because these stories need to be told. This food needs to be shared. And we all need to come around and, and, and see the world through those kinds of lenses. How excited were you, I guess, when you, you know, because putting something out on Kickstarter, and I think a lot of people now know what Kickstarter is. A couple years ago, maybe not as many. Putting something out there and getting it funded is not an easy thing. I mean, a lot of people hear about Kickstarter and the ones that are successful because those are the ones you hear about. Like, yay, they raised so much money. Like, it's just interesting to me that you had this whole journey, three years, and, you know, that was the journey in itself. And then you had this second journey of actually getting the book done. Were, were the feelings similar, like of putting this out, putting yourself out there on Kickstarter, and then seeing that the the mass amount of people coming and saying, no, you're right, let, let's do this, and giving you money to do the book. I imagine that that was just an amazing feeling. Yeah, th this, this was an adventure of a whole different type, man, and it also won where you have to trust your intuition, your gut. It's also one where you have to take risks because in Kickstarter, you set a goal. If you don't meet that goal, you don't get the money and you've got to work hard. I mean, I, I running a Kickstarter campaign, people think, oh, put Kickstarter up. People don't troll Kickstarter looking for projects to support. The only way anybody supports a project in Kickstarter is if they've heard about it from someone else. Right. So it's I, a platform to, to get your thing out there, but not to bring new people in. It's like you've yeah. got to do all the marketing for it through word of mouth and through the people you know. Exactly. And if you don't and if you're not prepared and you don't have contacts and these kinds of things, you know, you're, you're not going to go. Fifty six percent of Kickstarter projects fail. So more than half of them fail. So, you know, there is a huge risk and you got to do the work. So that adventure, I mean, I was up to all hours of the night working on email, you know, uh, responding to bloggers, asking people to, to look at this project. And it's not like they're giving you the money either. What, it, what they got here, they said, look, if this thing is successful and it hits its goal, they're going to get a book. You know, that was the most of the rewards were book related. I ordered, offered some photographs. I had some postcards made. And things like this that were amendments to that book, but people wanted the book in their hands. And this is not a book that is conducive to like a Kindle because it's so rich and colorful and texture. You touch it. I mean, I want people to take this into the kitchen and, and spill things on it, you know, use this book uh, and let it sit on your coffee table. So when you have guests coming over, they go, what is that? And they look up and they see the smiling faces of the people from Rwanda you know, or Uganda and Uruguay. I mean, this is beautiful. And this is, uh, this is the way. So that book got published thanks to, you know, the crowd, thanks to people, not the publishing industry, but to people who are curious and interested and wanted to see this thing come to fruition. What was the biggest challenge then with publishing the book? Was it the funding? Was it 
like you you mentioned, you did a lot of DIY. It was, I'm going to help lay this out. I mean, your fingerprints literally are all over this book. It's not something that you said, I'm going to write it and someone else handles everything else. It was a big time labor of love. What were some of the toughest parts of actually going from here's the story to now a finished product? People think about books. I want to be an author. I'm going to write. So this book has got stories and writing it is probably the easiest part for me. The publishing of this, because not only did I want to share the stories, I wanted to share the photos. So I've got to choose out of 50,000 photos, which ones are going to make the cut. Then I have to do the recipes and I've got, I didn't collect these recipes when I was on the road. So I had to then spend tons of more time reaching out to people I knew, looking through my photographs that were more notes photographs than they were, you know, the great, you know, visual landscape, you know, gallery quality photographs. I used the camera also as a notebook and I took a lot of pictures of food. I then needed to test those recipes. So I had to go back out to the crowd. Well, this is actually before and find people that could help me cook the recipe and make sure they worked. Because the last thing you want to do is publish a book and that, and I never done anything like this. I have no idea, you know, of how this works, but I learned, uh, as I did when I traveled around the world, languages and things. I learned the language of publishing a cookbook. And then from there, I needed to shoot, photograph those recipes, those photos of the food, uh, in the book. I didn't shoot because I realized I know where my, uh, I'm a documentary photographer. I'm not a studio food photographer. So now I've got to learn the old language of, of studio photography, food styling to make these dishes look good. And I also wanted to make them look as if they were shot in the environment where I was in that country. And that's a lot of work. I had to source the props. Every single photograph is shot in a different way. And that took me more than two years just to shoot the photography because I had to pay for it. It's not, it's not cheap hiring a professional photographer. So now you got that. So, so we've, we've, we've written it. We've sourced the recipes. We've tested the recipe. We shot the recipes. Now you've got to actually put the whole thing together and then you've got to find distribution. I mean, we can put up our, a little commerce site on our website and sell it, but this book needed to be available on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and your little independent bookstore like Monroe Books in Victoria, British Columbia. How do you get it into those stores? We could have a whole podcast on, on, on self or, or, as I prefer to call it, independent publishing. But I had to go through and navigate that world. So that's a journey. I mean, instead of going from, you know, Alaska to Paraguay, I'm going from let's write some stuff to photographing the photo business to the recipe cookbook world to the publishing world to the world of distribution. And they are all different countries with different languages as well. Yeah, that is crazy. And absolutely, it's it's just cool that you have a second journey latched on to the first, what you imagined would be the, the journey, the, the actual motorcycle ride. And now you've been able to go and do a second one in the publishing, in getting the story made, told, and done in a way that you felt did justice to the trip that you took. And that's just really neat. And, and you mentioned perseverance before earlier on the podcast. And you know, there again, it just comes down to perseverance no matter what you're doing. If you want to get it done, you have to say, I'm not going to give up. And one of the things, before we let you out of here, Alan, I want to ask you, there's, there's two questions we like to ask most of the guests. One is I want to ask you what some of your best tips 
for traveling more and spending less work? Because you were, you know, as you were doing this journey, I'm sure there's a lot of times where, you know, financially you got to say, well, I'm going to have to figure out a way to keep this journey going if I want to go everywhere that I want to go. What were some of the things that you found worked for you to be able to cut corners, to spend less money so that you could continue the journey? Well, you know, and most importantly, I think is just sometimes eating can be a very big expense uh, on a journey. And, you know, we all love to dine and have nice food and all that. But you can really uh, save a lot of money if you just eat local, okay? Eat at the roadside stands. I mean, in Indonesia, you can get a, this amazing nasi goreng or a bowl of, uh, of soup, you know, from uh, Penang food up in, say, Sumatra, you know, for, 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 for 45 cents. I mean, and it's delicious, too often, I think people are afraid. They look at the roadside stand and they think, you know, the, the guidebooks have warned them, be careful of what you eat, you know, blah, blah, blah. But use your gut, eat local. If you see something where there's a big crowd of people and they're all locals, go there. It's going to be cheaper and it's going to be better. That's, the, of- <laughs> that's the advice I give people all the time. If there's a crowd outside of it, and, and it's a street stall and you're afraid to eat it. or And people always ask me, why don't you ever get sick? Or, you know, I've gotten sick before. Why don't you usually get sick when you go out? Find the places where there's people at and eat at the times that the locals eat. If you're going to a roadside stall at 3 p.m. and they don't eat lunch or dinner, then, well, you're going to get food that's older and maybe not fresh. So eat at the times they eat and eat where they eat. And I think you're pretty safe. Yeah, so that's a that's a great way to save a little bit of money, and and you know, and the other way is, and it comes down, you know, you'll, you'll hear me beat the mantra of always be open. Uh, often, I think travelers, and it comes back to a little bit of that fear is if a stranger approaches them, they immediately go into shutdown mode. They think, oh, that guy's going to try to sell me something, or he's going to try to rip me off. And believe me, there are there are people out there that are going to want to give you the taxi ride and do all that. I mean, all that is is very true, but. But be open when somebody says, you know, I was cleaning the bike after this terrible muddy day in uh, somewhere in Brazil and I was washing it and a guy comes up to me and starts talking. Next thing you know, he's like, would you like to come to my house for lunch and would you like to stay the night? And, you know, this is not an unusual. This happened a lot. But I just remember I happen to be in my mode. I'm in travel mode. It would have been easy for me to just ignore this guy as I'm doing my work and getting the bike washed. And I'm like, oh. So think about it, get that gut, and and do that. You know what? And um, there you've saved a night of lodging. You've gotten food that's going to be better than anything else, and that's it. And if you don't have a motorcycle, and you're in a city or you know one of our one of our cities here, you know, getting around. Too often, I think travelers end up taking taxi cabs, and they're afraid to take mass transit. I love mass transit in countries I have no idea where to go because you really see the local flavor, the local people. Just be prudent, hold on to your things, you know. Petty crime is going to happen no matter you're in freaking Nashville or if you're in Cairo. But take the mass transit because you'll save a ton of money. And you're going to have funny, interesting experiences. Mass transit is a microcosm of that country to a T. Like you get on mass transit and everything is just heightened and it's it's crazy usually, but it's it's an adventure in and of itself. And it might only be a 20-minute train ride or a 30-minute bus ride, but you have an adventure that day because you decide to take mass transit versus exactly. the taxi cab. Versus the taxi. 
The other question, I don't want to let you off the hook here. And you've told some of the uh, the crazy stories, but a lot of people think like the more you travel, the less mistakes you make. And I found that's not true at all. The more I travel, the more mistakes I make. Do you have any hilarious mishaps that come to your mind with this adventure? Things that you did that maybe it was your fault. Maybe you made a stupid mistake and you thought, how, how did I make this mistake? Like I've been all over the world and here I am forgetting to do this or something like that. Is there any mishap that you can think of that you made during this adventure that in the long run turned out to be okay. Very interesting. Yeah. We all um, worry about getting ripped off. Okay. Everybody's always, I'm going to get pickpocketed and, you know, held at gunpoint and all that. And all this stuff happens, but you know, it never really happened to me. If I ever found myself where I've lost something, money, uh, gear, usually my own fault, Right. And whether that's being stupid or just being absent-minded. And trust me, when you travel on a motorcycle, everything's got a spot. Everything has got a place. I know where everything is so I can keep things together pretty easy. Once I get off the bike, things start exploding. Get into a, a, a hostel room and, you know, the, the bag, you know, what can, can fit into a, a cereal box now is like taking up the whole bed or something like that. And, you know, it's all got to be put back. But I was in somewhere in southern uh, South America, and I had stopped at a little, they call them kioscos, I think, in South America, a little place where you can buy candies. Uh, there's uh, places, you know, they've got phone booths you can use. There's internet cafes, all this stuff. And I went in there, and I used a phone to call a local person. And yet I did have a cell phone, but for whatever reason, it wasn't working there. So when I went to pay the guy for my phone call, you know, you go on there, he counts the minutes, and then you go and pay the cashier. The cashier sits behind this semicircle of stacks of candy bars, salty goods, you know, like a convenience store is what it is. So he sits there behind, and he's got the cashier. He tells you how much. Well, I paid him the money, and I went back to my room, and I even woke up the next morning. And I'm looking around for my phone because I'm going to go and recharge the minutes. Maybe that's what I need to do. And I'm like, where is my phone? And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Could have I gotten pickpocketed? Did somebody break into my room last night and take my phone? And I'm going through it. And I'm like, there's just no way. No way. So finally, I just retrace my steps. And I go back to that kiosk where I made that phone call where all that candy was. And I said, hey. Do you guys have my phone by chance? He's like, oh, I was waiting for you. And he holds it. I had set it down on the M&Ms. Now, most people think, oh, that yeah, they're gonna, you'll never see it again. They stole it. No, he was waiting for me, wondering when I was going to come back. Gave me my phone. And this was an expensive smartphone. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it's It truly is amazing how many times I've traveled where I've started to blame other people or the situation or the country or whatever it is. And then, you know, sure enough, Half an hour later, I've realized it's either my own, it's it's my own fault or my own absent-mindedness. And you sit back and you think, and and most of the time that that happens, it actually turns into a good thing. Like you're amazed by the fact that this guy who has very little handed you back a phone that's probably worth as much as everything in his store. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And that's not the first time where I've set something down and I went back and realized. So I guess the moral of the story is you can trust people a little bit, but try to hold on to your things. Right. 
So, Alan, what do you have then in the pipeline that people should be looking out for? Because Forks is out there. We're going to tell people in, a, in just a minute how to get it and all that type of stuff. But do you have other things that you're doing, either personally or professionally, that people should be on the lookout for? Well, you know, I'm, um, you know, I do a lot of speaking, public speaking. I get hired by companies to come in and I share these stories with great photographs. It's a very multimedia talk. Uh, you know, I do motivational, inspirational, and, and I translate a lot of what we've been talking about, risk-taking, um, uh, being open to new experiences, and not being afraid, driven by that, which is important in customer service and in marketing and certainly in innovation and product development, you know, these kinds of things. So that is so exciting because I get to meet people from all over our country, even all over the world. I speak to diverse audiences and share these stories. And what's great about it is it can help them in their own uh, lives to, to see, wow, look at what this guy's been through and look what, what can I do? What I did was nothing amazing except that, you know, broke my leg, got walked into the jungle and these things that are great lessons. I like to share that I, I do that. And sometimes they're public, but usually they're corporate things. Um, uh, Forks, the book is, uh, amazing. It's beautiful. You know, that, that journey is going to continue. And, uh, I hope at one point to actually create a multimedia book, you know, something that's not a Kindle, but more like an iBook that creates that experience. That'll be like taking forks to another level. And then I'm, you know, I've been working, talking to uh, a number of different people about how do we take, you know, forks is great. The idea is multi-sensory. here. You can see you know, the beauty of the world through the faces and the places that I visited in those great photographs that there's 700 photographs in my book. So you really get that. You can feel that country through my stories of connection with culture. And you can taste that country through the flavors of the food and the recipes. But what's missing? Sound, music, and motion. So I've been talking to some people about how do we take forks, how do we take this and get back on the road and make a, a, a television series or a documentary or something like that. The television series idea really rings to me, but I've insisted with all the people I've been talking to that we do this with the smallest possible crew because the experience changes. Remember, I traveled alone. So now to have somebody around me with a camera all the time, those connections with people could become more difficult. So we're sorting through that. So there could be a series, a television series coming out. And I'm certainly going to do that traditional book that we talked about at the beginning, the narrative, the travelogue, the story that gets deeper because those people that have purchased forks, they love it. And they, I get more emails like Alan, more, 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 you know, there needs to be more stories. So there are more stories because I, you know, I couldn't, you know, to represent 35 countries, I had to kind of share little vignettes. So uh, for those people looking for more, we're going to do that. Awesome. Well, lots of stuff on the horizon, Alan. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Your story is truly an inspiration, both in the actual journey that you took and then everything that you've done since that to actually get it out there to the people and, and, and also the spirit in which you did it, as opposed to just saying, yeah, I'm going to write a book and go for the biggest success or anything like that. It's really cool that you decided to do it on your own terms. Before I let you go, remind people how they can come connect with you. Also, the best way for them to get their own copy of Forks. So Forks is available on my website, autographed copies at ForksTheBook.com. And there's also a way to contact me through a contact form at ForksTheBook.com. But it's also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstore, 
Book Chameleon, the usual. If they don't have it, they can order it. It's, uh, as I said, it's a beautiful book. So you can, I'll sign one personally to you if you buy it from me on my website. But uh, you can also, frankly, the Amazon sells it for a little bit cheaper. So save some money, buy it on Amazon if you like. I am on Twitter at World Rider, like World Motorcycle Rider. So follow me on World Rider, as well as on Facebook uh, is great because, you know, I always share stories of travels. I I did a, a Christmas, uh, between Christmas and New Year's, a, a little ride that was kind of fun. So there's a, you know, blog posts and little videos and stay up to date on, on uh, public appearances. Uh, I just did an interview on NPR. More of that's coming up. So, you know, there's places you can, you know, continue to hear more of this great stuff that I love to talk with Travis about. And, but get forks. That's most important. And look out for the new TV show. Awesome. And guys, I highly recommend checking out Alan's site. Go to Forks the Book that has some background that's got some great photos on it as well. And if you want to hear more about the adventure, we just we just touched on it. A tip of the iceberg here. Get yourself some delicious recipes. Grab a copy of Forks. Everything that Alan just mentioned will, of course, be linked up in the show notes. You can get that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods. And if you've liked this podcast, remember, we're giving you recommendations. We're 140-some podcasts in now, guys. So two other ones you probably enjoy, some of this adventure travel stuff, episode 51 with Akshay Nanavati, who's attempting to run across every country in the world, and episode 53 with Joel Runyon, who talks about how he was not even able to get hired at Target, and then he went to speaking at their headquarters, and he's doing the 777 Project, which is attempting to run seven ultramarathons on all seven continents while raising money to build seven schools. So if you loved Alan's story, you're going to want to check those ones out as well. Alan, thanks again for coming on the show. I'm so glad that we finally both were settled down somewhere for a few minutes that we could talk and and really get you on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, this has been great, Travis. uh, I enjoyed that. and, uh, And let's do it again. For sure. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. And until next time, happy free travels.